0: Hello, everyone. It's Christine Marie Mason, your host for the Rose Woman podcast. Every week we talk about something that could create a little more spaciousness, love, liberation, freedom, or power in our lives. And this week we are talking about rest. When I hear the word rest, I remember that little squiggle from grammar school music class that told you to pause early on even though i never studied music theory i'm a singer but i never studied music theory early on i remember someone repeating the quote from mozart that the music is not about the notes but in the silence between that's also by the way when you're doing an om in yoga it's om one o oh, two u three mmm mm, mm, and then a silence the silence is part of the om it's not this long drawn out mmm. The resonance after the song or after the chant is part of the sound. Miles Davis also had a variation on that idea about the silence, the rest, when he said, it's not the notes you play, it's the notes you don't play. Don't play what's there, play what's not there. So this to me is, is about life. It's a life philosophy. Like, What notes are you not playing? so that your attention can be brought to what's important. If you want to go a little further in the magic of language and the way music has such special ways of communicating, there are different names for each of the lengths of a rest. So a whole note rest is a semi-brev, a half note is minim, quarter note is crotchet, eighth note is quaver, and a sixteenth note rest is a semi-quaver. And this reminded me of the meditation teaching that says, you know, when you start your meditation practice, it's 20 minutes or 30 minutes a day, and then it might become five minutes in every hour, and then it might become a portion of every minute until you're moving in the world in this way where you're oscillating between a restful meditative state and active doing on the regular, so your life becomes a walking meditation, which I just thought was so beautiful. Well, I'm pretty far from that. Um, personally at the moment, I have a tendency to overdo and to stay busy with a lot of different things that I care about and forget myself in the process and uh, then get depleted. And then my form of depletion results in, generally speaking, sinus, bronchial kind of stuff. And of course, then as a singer, you are really down. So I have been learning how rest is not for me Or the burnout effect is really not for me that I'm overgiving, overgiving. It's that I'm not managing my energy well, and I don't have great clarity on the things that I'm doing on any given moment. And so I'm kind of chasing the tail of my life. And when I am on my rest practices and my replenishment practices, being in nature, um, meditating, doing my yoga, being with friends doing things like painting or things that creatively support me, then everything else seems to flow from there. So what's the research on this? What does the scientific community say? Today we have an amazing expert, Sandra Dalton-Smith. She's an MD who uh, has a rest quiz you can take. And she's going to speak with us about the different kinds of rest and how to cultivate them in our lives. So that's our focus on timely too, because we're going into the holidays And if you're female and you take on any of the cultural roles, you probably have a whole layer of holiday magic that you're getting prepared to create. And that's a whole nother overlay on what is already, generally speaking, full lives for most people. So can we cultivate rest even in these more demanding cultural times or say what we really and truly want in these times? Enjoy. Enjoy. Welcome to Dr. Sandra Dalton-Smith, who has written a few wonderful books. Uh, The one that we're going to start talking about today is Sacred Rest, Recover Your Life, Renew Your Energy, and Restore Your Sanity. I imagine that for a lot of people out there, rest is something that's hard to get to these days. So before we get started on the book, I'd love to hear about you. How did you begin on this journey as an author and what motivates you?
1: my profession is that of an internal medicine physician. So that's where I began. And the reason behind it simply is because I enjoy helping people get to better versions of themselves. And so during that process, about 10 years into my medical practice, uh, is when I had my family and got married and all of the things and really just hit a point of burnout. And that's what led me on a search for how do I continue in the thing that I love, which is a very taxing, high performance type career, and not stay in a place of depletion while I'm doing that career. So that led to the research and the books and all the things that I do now.
0: Uh, The idea of up-leveling through rest is not a common one. I would say most people are like, I'm going to up-level by changing my nutrition or trying harder. You know, it's more striving. So um, you want to talk about the research a little bit?
1: Yeah, I think for you're right, that's the way many people do look at kind of overcoming some of these obstacles. But I know for myself, I was already striving, I'm, I'm a high intensity person, as is, and I realized that that wasn't what I needed, what I needed was a way of recovery. So when I talk about rest, I'm not specifically referring to cessation activities or sleeping or stopping, because really, those don't pour back into our places of depletion when I talk about rest, I'm talking about restorative practices. So within my research and within my 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 own personal care for myself and my patients, what I noticed were, there were some consistent, repetitive areas of our lives that we depleted, really without any true plan for recovery, for restoration of those areas. And that's where the seven types of rest came from. And that's where the additional research into those seven came from.
0: This idea that rest is not a cessation of activity is such a beautiful one. There, there are so many moments when it's like, oh, I just need to lay down and take a nap. But that's not it. That's not it. It's not non-doing. It's doing the right things. These seven types that you write about, do we want to go through all seven? Or do we want to just pick a couple?
1: Sure, I'm happy to mention the seven and we can dive into any deeper that you desire that so the seven include physical rest, mental, spiritual, emotional, social, sensory and creative. And so, you know, there are some that that depending on your own personality and profession and lifestyle, you may be more prone to have a deficiency in and then there's others that you're probably already excelling at because you've learned you need to restore those places to be functional. But a lot of us have at least one or two rest deficits one or two of these areas where we consistently pull from and aren't as intentional in pouring back into those areas. So this idea you have a rest quiz, don't you? I do I have an assessment at restquiz.com. And to date over about a quarter billion people have taken it it really just gives you a, a it gives you a number so that you're able to see where you fall in these seven areas and which one you may be more deficient in
0: so as there have you seen patterns like where are the, where are the places that people are more deficient
1: it varies what we saw were some huge shifts and changes with the pandemic. Before the pandemic, there were always mental mental rest deficits were always on the higher end, um, followed usually closely thereafter by either emotional or social. With the pandemic, we saw sensory rest really rise to the top, that being an area that most people were getting deficient in. And it and it went right along with some of the things we were hearing with more people going virtual and and hybrid offices and all these other things that were happening with electronics and, and our own news consumption, just trying to keep up with everything on social media and television, the sensory input from our TVs and our gadgets left many of us drained and depleted, and we did not have a system in place for improving that part of ourselves.
0: Do you mean like a digital detox kind of situation? Let's talk about that. What is, it, what is sensory overload or, and what is sensory rest?
1: Yeah, sensory rest is simply removing some of the sensory inputs. So it works in many different ways. I'll give some examples. If you're, if you're someone who works from home and you have kids that are playing in the background or maybe they were homeschooling during this time, then they may be laughing and talking and doing things and you're, you've, you've mentally toned it out tuned it out so that you're not focusing on it. But that doesn't change how your body's receiving that input, your body's still experiencing the the sensory information that's coming in. Same as if you're in an office space where your desk may be by the elevator. So you're hearing the ding 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 all day long, and you've tuned it out. But you're still going to respond subconsciously because your body is still having the sensory input. So whether that's the lights, the sounds, the smells, what are the sensory inputs that you're experiencing, and at some point, if you're experiencing something repetitively, it can leave you feeling depleted in that area, just overwhelmed a sensory overload type symptom. And for most of us, our response to that is usually irritation, agitation, rage or anger, we get agitated from the excessive amount of sensory input. Yeah, I
0: was thinking about there's a a whole suite of latent ambient things like the alerts on your computer, the ones that are always dinging and buzzing and telling you there's a new message or, you know, that's that's one of those ambient sounds that's highly controllable. You can just turn those alerts off as an example. But that this background hum uh, becomes almost so ingrained that you don't even hear it. You know, I'm thinking about like the hum of appliances and noisy neighbors or when I was during the pandemic, I was living in Los Angeles and there was an increase in police helicopter traffic overhead. And I really noticed that as an impact on my nervous system, becoming aware of the latent background hum and and consciously choosing something different sounds like it's part of it.
1: Yeah, and it and how you choose something different really is the intentionality of it because for some people, especially for my clients who are living in situations as you mentioned in LA where you can't just turn off, you know, the noise, it's not like it's a radio or TV, then just even having moments where you're using noise cancellation earphones, 30 minutes of silence can go a long way to calming down your your body and calming down your mind and your spirit. And so the intentionality of it, because most of the time when we put our earphones on, it's to listen to more noise. What about using them to actually block out noise?
0: I do that in airports, doctor. I put on my noise-canceling headphones so that when I walk through airports, I don't have to listen to all of those, you know, security alerts that are reminding me that my neighbors are dangerous, you know, not to leave my bag unattended. I don't have to listen to those coming at me over and over and over. They're kind of programming my subconscious anyway. Um, But I like the idea of doing it at home or in the office. So that's sensory. That's beautiful. Uh, And then the mental rest, that sounded like it was another really big one that, that people were deficit in.
1: Yeah, and it really takes a look at clearing out your cerebral space and not having it so filled with thoughts and ideas and processing information all of the time. Many of us, our brain, we treat it very similar to how we treat our computers. If you ask the average person how many taps they have open or windows are open on their computer, it's often multiple windows that are open all at one time. Well, our headspace gets very similar, multiple thoughts that we're, that we're flushing around and thinking about. And then when you do actually try to go to sleep at night, from many of us, that's when we start trying to clean out the tabs We we start processing through all of these mental tabs and thinking about things that happened that day or our to do list for the next day. And we need to have some way that we are kind of closing up some of those mental windows. So I enjoy things like having a notepad at the bedside where you're doing maybe a brain dump before you go to sleep, having some time where you're focusing your thoughts and you're not multitasking. So you're training your brain to hone in on a single kind of more mindful approach at work than just thinking all the things and trying to process through multiple projects at one time. And really any type of mindfulness activities that help with that focus and concentration can help with mental rest.
0: Yeah, I love the bedtime one. Like, I do um, have sort of the hour before bedtime, no digital rule, which I don't, I forget where I learned that. But the, the list before, like, here are the critical things for tomorrow. It's almost like I hand it over to the paper and the paper holds it for me. And then I don't have to keep it
1: running in my head. That's exactly right. Because unfortunately, when we ruminate over information, which is what most of us do, as we're going to bed, we think the same thought over and over again, rumination is the same process we used in college or elementary school, when you're trying to memorize something, a rumin- that, that ruminization process tells the brain, this is important, I want you to hold on to this information, it gives it a job right before you're trying to go to sleep. When you write it on something concrete, you've now given the brain permission to release it. And it no longer has to feel like it is responsible for holding on to that bit of information.
0: Yeah, you're no responsible anymore. That notebook over there is. What about um, evening gratitude practices? uh, What was beautiful today? Evening prayer? Any of those kinds of things? Do you have those in your
1: toolkit? Yeah. So the things that you mentioned prayer and gratitude journals, sometimes those fall over into the emotional rest aspect, emotional rest being specifically, being able to authentically express what you're feeling and what you're dealing with and what you're encountering within your day. And so Gratitude is a part of that expression. Sometimes that expression could be journaling specifically what you're feeling and what what experiences you had that day, so that you're not feeling like you're having to carry the emotional load and the emotional labor of those emotions without having a place that you can release them. Mm. But obviously, it's always helpful to have friends and therapists and counselors and people that you can release that to. but that's not always realistic for everyone. So having a place that you can release it safely can be something like a journal or or a notebook.
0: Do you remember that? There was an old TV show. I can't remember which one. In that little house on the, the Waldron, the Waltons. Mm-hmm. Huge amount of children living in the same house. And right before bed, they would all yell out, good night, so-and-so, good night, John Boyd. Do you remember that? Yes, yes. <laughs> and I'm thinking about like right before bed, you know, that, that there is a technological, it's not, we, I don't do it right before bed, but like an hour before bed, we have a sort of a family thread. And then there's a couple of friends threads, and there'll be like a little burst of, okay, good night, y'all. And, and, you know, kind of a sweet dreams greeting across time space, across the ethers that feels connected and also puts a like your, your, puts a kind of a closure on the day. I I really love I really love that when those threads are active. That's a good use of technology.
1: It is. And I think sometimes social media gets a bad rap because it can be toxic, but it can also be very fulfilling. It's just making sure you're using it in a way that is uplifting to you and gives you the benefits that you want, and then you have the courage to shut it down when it's not doing that.
0: Yeah. One of the reasons that I thought it would be good to talk about rest is the number one thing that I get in my surveys of my customers is their stress and anxiety stops them from being in joy and that this seemed like such a good cure. And then I thought that most uh, of the major religions, they all have a Sabbath day. And even Dr. Tiffany Schlein she, she put together something called 24-6, which is you know basically advising people to take a tech Sabbath, a day that you just aren't a digital detox day one full day a week where you're just in your body and not connected do you see in this rest prescription that you're giving to people ways that
1: it could be implemented that are universal or is it all individual well that's the thing with with the way that i approach rest i believe that having set aside time for deeper levels of rest can be very beneficial, as far as a Sabbath or taking a sabbatical or whatever that may look like for someone. But I believe that we shouldn't be waiting to get restored, I feel like restoration should be an ongoing process. So when I'm working with clients or working within corporations, the, pr- the goal is always how do we incorporate rest in the middle of your busy life, I don't want you to have to change who you are to fit rest in, I want you to take a look at the life you're living And find places where you can begin to do restorative practices. Because think about it this way: for myself as a physician, I can't just decide, "Oh, I need a sabbatical this week." The hospital does not close; people are still sick seven days a week, 24/7. And so, I can't do a 24/6 with that. If I'm needing to be available during that time, I need to be available. What are the things I can do in the hospital when I'm feeling? emotionally drained, or when I'm feeling mentally drained, what are some five minute blocks of time, two minute practices, what are some things I can do then, because then I'm not having to have the last patient of the day, get the empty version of me, where only the first patients of the day get the full version of me, I want every one of them to get the best version of me that can show up in that ICU or ER. And so that's why when I'm working with companies, because that's a big part of the work that I do now, is how do we build in restorative practices within your team, within your organization? How do we learn energy management that's personalized, but it's also going to change the corporate culture and transform it so that there's a culture of well-being?
0: I have a, a teacher who told us, you know, initially you began meditating and you do your meditation for 20 or 30 minutes in the morning or the evening or whatever. But eventually as you practice, it's like you're kind of meditating five minutes in the hour and then it's a, like a part of every minute and then it's like an oscillation between rest and action in the moment. In every moment is like a part of a dance between rest- restoration and action, which I loved as a, as a vision. But this idea of weaving it into every day versus waiting and having a set-aside day is very powerful.
1: Well, I think when we when we make it more accessible to people, they can start applying it where they're at, rather than waiting for the moment when they're going to be able to fit it in. Because that moment doesn't come for most people, they will just keep pushing it off, pushing it off. So you have to really meet people where they're at. If they are high strung, high achievers, high producers, going at life with both guns blazing, you have to meet them where they're at. And then you can help them along the way to get to a place where they have created space in their life for rest. But everyone can't start with the one full day off a week or, you know, monthly sabbatical and all of those things.
0: Yeah, that's a little privilegey. How is it for you? Like in when you're in the hospital? How do you do it?
1: Yeah, one of the things that I find for myself is that I try to simplify the process as much as possible. So one of the areas that I tend to drain very quickly in is creative rest, creative rest is the rest we experience when we are appreciating beauty in whatever form and allowing it to kind of reawaken and spark our creativity. I spend a lot of time processing information, problem solving, having to think outside of the box, taking two bits of information and figuring out a diagnosis. There's a lot of creative juice that's used in that process of problem solving. And so I have to be aware of that. And so one of the things that at our hospital, we actually put in some um, wings of artwork. So when I'm walking down the hall, there's inspiration on my way as I'm walking from one floor to another floor. Sometimes I'll actually have on my phone, something that's motivational or inspirational to me, so that I can quickly kind of as I'm checking emails or checking my texts, I'm getting small amounts of creative rest, which could be natural beauty, like pictures of mountains or trees or the ocean, or it could be man-made beauty, like the artwork that I'm mentioning, or something like dance if you're going to go watch a, sh- or a theater or something like that that you might be watching at home. Uh, another thing that I tend to do that I that I have to do to be able to keep my mind clear is I use small moments of my day to do mindfulness type practices. So when I take a moment to let's say check in on my kids or check in with my husband, I completely refuse to allow anything else to enter those five minutes, I sit down, I bring up a picture of my child or my husband or whoever it is I'm about to check in with. And so as I'm texting and, and talking with them, I have that image in my mind. And as other things try to push in, I forcefully push them back out because I want to spend that five minutes thinking about what I want to think about and not allowing my mind to just go rampant on whatever direction it wants to go. And then the last thing that's that I found to be really helpful is on my way home from work, I don't listen to anything, not radio, none of those things. I might listen later in the day. But on that drive home from work, I detox sensory wise as much as I can with the external noise. And I just drive home in silence.
0: So you're using the interstitial space that arises in the day to just be with yourself. That's a good way of finding it. I always feel like when I'm driving, I should be listening to an audio book or I should be listening to a podcast. I should be, you know, doing something to enrich and broaden my worldview so I don't get boring because the learning is such an important, that, that, that's one of the things that kind of leaves my field when I'm busy on my responsibilities and tasks and I want to keep learning. But I like the idea of making it just a quiet meditative space. You know, it's an interesting combination of books that you're writing about because Sacred Rest is one way of making your life really high quality. And then you have this other book that is talking about the lies that women tell themselves. Can you talk a little bit about how, how you see the through line between Set Free to Live Free, this book, and then your upcoming book, Colorful Connections?
1: Yeah, for me, all of my books are based around the things of healing. So sacred rest is healing the exhaustion that I'm seeing within my at the time within myself and my patients set free to live free breaking through the seven lies women tell themselves was healing the misconceptions and the negative self talk that I had. And I know a lot of women experience when they're trying to, especially if you're trying to have a career in a male based field. there's a lot of head talk that you need to get past to be able to excel and to rise in that profession. And then Colorful Connections is healing the racial divide. It's healing some of the misconceptions that people have about diversity and equity and inclusion and what their role can be in that process so that not just they benefit, but the world benefits from the diversity that's available.
0: Yeah, like you've never, could you imagine a garden that only had one kind of being, you know, one kind of flower? So I love this idea that you have the f- set free to live free. you have the free woman's creed.
1: Yeah, the free Romans creed are those things that it's, as I mentioned, it's a lot about that self talk, and it's changing the things that we say to ourselves, so that we get to a place where we're, we're speaking life to ourselves, we're not always saying the things that that automatically our mind wants to go to the negative, you could do this better, you're not good enough at that. I mean, I could go on, I'm sure we've all said some of these things to ourselves, or still saying these things to ourselves. And we just need new vocabulary, we need new ways of, of talking to ourselves about ourselves. And that's what that free woman's creed is, it's just reframing some of those negative statements in a way that is more freeing and open. And, and honestly, that gives ourselves the, the grace we give to others.
0: Yeah, can I do an example? Yeah, sure. Dr. Smith writes, instead of perfectionism, striving for perfection, the affirmation is I am perfectly imperfect. And instead of comparing yourself to others, I am too unique for comparisons. It's along those lines. So if you're interested in that uh, reframing and, you know, really talking about some of these high pressure stories and narratives that we carry in our in our bodies and beings, then please go find Set Free to Live Free, Breaking Through the Seven Lies Women Tell Themselves. The racial reconciliation stuff, I've done the Resma book, My Grandmother's Hands, which was uh, like, it, it's a pretty intense Process to do uh, to try to mine your own ancestry, the racism that lives in each person, uh, what you hold in yourself, and then to see the reality that your fellow citizens are living with. I'd love to I'd love to talk about that uh, race and and biasing and unbiasing seems to be you know nobody really wants to talk about it at work. You know you've got this whole uh, controversy now over not teaching. The history of the United States in schools sort of masked as critical race theory, kind of that whole debate, like people don't want to look. And we all know that if you don't look at something and you don't feel it, you can't heal it. So I'm really excited to hear about this book and and how you framed it. It seems like you do things in a very practical, applied way. So you want to give us
1: a little preview? Yeah, so in Colorful Connections, we we basically walk through a system of helping people understand that even if you're uncomfortable having the conversations, it doesn't give you the ability to not have the conversations. I think sometimes because we're trying to avoid discomfort, we we shy away from these type of topics. And th- the book is co authored with Lori Roleveld, I can't say she's a friend because we don't know each other. We were basically two strangers, two authors who, who wrote books, and are we have the same agent, and she had the heart to write a book about this topic as a white woman from Rhode Island, who as she states, I don't know any black people. But I want to help this situation. It's like I, I understand that there's much I need to learn, and I'm willing to go into the conversation of how to learn and expand and have these conversations with people that I don't know yet so that I can grow and so that I can get to a place where I feel like I can have this conversation without being scared or feeling shame or blame or any of the things that she felt when she initially went in. And so when I was contacted by her and my agent about writing this book with her, the very first conversation that we had together, she, her she was very open and honest and said, I, I, I'm, I'm terrified, I have a feeling we're going to probably get in an argument at some point during this conversation. And I said, Absolutely. I hope we do. Because that's what the reader needs to see. They need to see two real people coming into a vulnerable space, having the conversations, asking questions, learning and growing from each other. And it just begins with a willingness to listen and to learn. Did you get an argument? Oh, yeah, we went back and forth on all sorts of things. (laughs) And it's all in the book. We go, we go deep, we go deep about trying to understand, we go deep into topics such as what is privilege? And is everybody privileged? And is and, and how do we determine, you know, what's right or wrong in certain situations? And how do I enter this a conversation and not feel offended or guilty? When I look at history, we went into some hard stuff. And so you know, when you go into hard stuff, there's not always going to be agreement. But can we disagree and still maintain dignity and decency with each other? That was our goal. Can we disagree and still stay in a place of honoring each other's differences, honoring each other's cultural makeups and biases, recognizing that those biases are there, and taking ownership of the ones that we own, and then getting to a place where we're willing to to help lead others in similar conversations?
0: There's a skill set in being able to sit in your own discomfort. That is not only in this conversation, but it's in your intimate relationships and your difficulties at work so there's a sort of feels like a little bit of a precursor well not a precursor maybe it's concurrent that you're able to be present and hold it when you get anxious or you want to run or you want to lean out and fix it that there's so many of us who aren't comfortable with conflict period that it seems like having a conversation like this would just invite something we already dislike so maybe the getting comfortable with conflict is sort of part of the practice.
1: It is it's really getting to that place where you are you you understand that if you see someone hurting, even if you're not hurting, that your compassion and your empathy puts you in a position where you want to help. And the, in this particular role, helping means you're gonna likely go through an uncomfortable experience of self of self discovery of understanding other people of getting into other people's mindsets and ways of thinking and looking at things so that you can at least see their perspective. Did you learn something from Lori in this
0: process? Were you surprised?
1: Yes, it was a two way streak, you know, she entered it wanting to learn. But you know, it was a two way streak. I think we both left this process, really feeling at a much better place. Like I said, when we entered this, we, we didn't know each other <laughs> at all, really, we would met one time in passing at an author event. Um, and that's the extent of, of how much we knew about each other. And leaving this process now, I feel like I know so much more about her history and her experiences and why she believes certain things and and why she entered the conversation with certain mindsets. And she understands where I was coming from with some of these experiences as well. And it was just a matter of taking the time to, to listen and to learn to listen without being so quick to be offended, when someone said something that maybe didn't come out the right way, or the way that you would hope it would have come out, and getting to a place where we just really wanted to get, we wanted to get through the hard things to to find the person on the other side of that, not just hearing the things that they said, sometimes, for example, one of the things that we talked about is this concept, people say, um, you know, I'm colorblind, I don't see color. And what I had to tell her is, I don't want you to be colorblind. I want you to be color aware. I don't want you to look at me and discount part of me because it makes you uncomfortable. I want you to be aware of of who I am and what I bring and be open to experience it.
0: Last weekend, I made a date with a friend of mine to go get purple tips on my hair. And uh, he has locks. He's a black man with locks. And so we're both getting the same color. We're going to go do this thing. It did not even occur to me that they would have to bleach his hair out in order to put the color in. And, and I didn't even understand what would happen to his hair when they put the bleach on. And it was like, I had never considered in my mind one time that if you have African hair, what's going to happen to your hair? Well, you know, it just never occurred to me. And I was thinking about like all these subtle layers of bias. Like my daughter's a she makes wedding gowns. For the bottom of a wedding gown, you use a, a base layer and the base layer is supposed to be skin color so that it blends in with the bride. It's like a kind of a, a mesh that disappears into the skin and you lay sequins on top of that. But skin color is considered to be a Caucasian pinkish nude that on a darker skinned woman shows up as fabric. And so she went out and created an entire line of custom dyed skin tone nets that could be used as bases but until she had a black bride she did not know that so I mean there's just all these places where you know like you're saying it's like that I it's it's not that I want to discount it it's that it's hidden in so many ways that would never even occur to you when you're in a dominant culture mindset I think that's what privilege feels like to me is like I have the privilege of not thinking about it do you
1: know what I'm saying I actually say that exact statement to Lori, within the book, that is the privilege, you don't have to think about certain things. And it works both ways. I have privilege in certain situations as well, where I don't think about certain things when I'm in in an environment, because I feel comfortable in that environment. So I, I think we have to be aware that privilege can work both ways. But as you mentioned, with the dominant culture, most of the cultural experiences that people have that are not from that dominant culture can have some some differences that if people are not color aware, then they just don't think about it. They don't see the the disadvantage that comes from that privilege.
0: Mm. So 12 questions about race that open healthy conversations. And would you say that in order to get into this question into the inquiry with someone Like one thing I'm conscious of is not asking other people to do the emotional labor if they're not in a place to do it of like racial reconciliation, for example. So how do you pick your person to have this kind of dialogue with or where do you ask the questions?
1: Well, I always say this starts with there's really three parts to this. The first part is the listening part. The second part is the learning. The last part is the leading. And so anyone who enters this conversation should typically enter with the listening aspect of it. Because until you're able to hear other people's sides and hear the conversations being going that are going on, it's unlikely you're going to be comfortable enough to then start engaging and and learning more from it. And so I think really is just finding the person who's willing to listen, to listen without judgment to just have an open heart and, and sit in the moment and absorb what they see around them. So one of the things that I found very helpful, particularly with a lot of the things that were going on in the media with all the different situations that were happening in the world around the time when this book was being written, is rather than determining if this person is right or wrong, can you listen to the person that's hurting? And just un- get an understanding to what has hurt them, because it's not sometimes what you believe is what's causing the pain.
0: You know, it occurs to me that if we look at the combination of sacred rest in this book, that maybe rest is different uh, for people of color. Is there? Do you see different challenges when you look at this population? Is there something that we would that we should understand differently?
1: I feel like rest is different for every person across the board, male, female, um, every gen, every race, every ethnicity, I feel like it varies from person to person, more so related to your specific lifestyle, career choices, and environment, more so than one specific culture or one specific ethnicity. I think it really has more to just do with the individual lifestyle, what areas of rest become depleted.
0: Is there anything that you would like people to know? I'm going to definitely put all of the the links and all of that stuff in in here and encourage them to take the rest quiz if that's still what you'd like.
1: Yeah, so um, the main website is IChooseMyBestLife.com and then at the top page, the rest quiz is available there as well as links to all my books.
0: And are you going to be having an online community component to Colorful Connections or is there going to be places for people to enter into dialogue or find partners to talk with or anything like that?
1: That's in the mix. Right now we are doing that with a select group of people as we kind of work through the conversation, see where people have hiccups along the way with conversations. So we're doing that right now and we're looking to expand it out into a larger group as we move forward.
0: Yeah, it just feels like something that would really lend itself to book club or community work or libraries or something like that in a a more structured way. Okay. So, we're we're encouraging everybody out there to take your sacred rest, find out where you're depleted, get your little rainbow color wheel dialed in about the areas that are full and the areas that could use a little bit support in your own being. We're encouraging you to let go of the stories of comparison and perfectionism and we're encouraging you to connect at a deep and empathic level across racial lines and and with the exact person that's in front of you to see them for who they are and be interested in their experience so all of these topics you can find uh, by Dr. Sandra Dalton Smith and at her website I choose my best life is there anything that you'd like to close with
1: Yes, I just like to thank you for having me on and just for having the courage to have this type of conversation where we go into various topics that are not always easy, but really are a part of helping women be the best versions of themselves.
0: If you could have one wish for the women of the world, you had a magic wand, you get to wave
1: it, what would it be? My one wish is that they begin every day full and end it overflowing.
0: Ah. Thank you so much. Thank you thank you to Sandra. You can find her information in the show notes. I would also encourage you to take advantage of the meditations that I've recorded for sleep. They're free. You can find them at my website, xteenm.com. I think there's even a link from my Instagram at the.rose.woman. It's a relaxation meditation, very sweet and short, but can help you kind of drop into your body. This show is made possible by Rosebud Woman. The URL is rosewoman.com. That's a company that I started that makes beautiful vulvar, vaginal, intimate skin preparations and body care, brushes, candles, lifestyle products. You can also find for this particular episode a book that I wrote a couple of years ago called The Nine Gifts, a first aid kit for mind, body, and spirit. My friend Jeff Greenwald and I put a lot of energy into collecting science-backed micro-interventions that can change our state and create more ease in the body and put it into a beautiful gift book. It's hardback with vibrant colors, interviews, and suggestions for things that we might try to move a little energy and drop deeper into ourselves. All right, come see me and let me know how you like this episode at the.rose.woman.com on Instagram. Be well. Be rested. Be whole.